This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Roundtable listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Gravel, epidemiologist, family medicine resident in Toronto, and soon-to-be emergency medicine resident in Hamilton, and one of your now regular rotating co-hosts. I'm really happy to introduce my co-host today, Dr. Brad Kaplansky. Brad is a practicing academic primary care physician in Toronto. Brad is new to the roundtable, but not new to the podcasting world. He's the creator and host of the podcast, Primary Care Spiel, in which docs deliver their spiels, as in say what they actually say to patients on an assortment of medical topics. Episodes cover various family medicine-related areas, ranging from spiels from the emergency room, non-purulent distrite instructions, for example, to OB expectant moms, expect questions. Check it out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Brad, welcome to the show. John, thrilled to be here. And thanks for the shout out to Primary Care Spiel. I'm planning on releasing my next round of podcasts in the next month or so. My next episode is on contraception. It's called Empowering Your Females, Period. Stay tuned. I'm a big fan of the show, John. Long time listener, first time caller, as they say, and excited to be on it. Let's do it. Okay, Brad, let's dive right in. What article are you going to be telling us about here today? So it's a bit of a mouthful, you know, aren't they all these days? Today I'll be reviewing the efficacy and safety, of course, of oral basal insulin versus subcutaneous insulin glargine in type 2 diabetes, a randomized double-blind phase 2 trial by Halberg et al., published in The Lancet in January 2019. Great. Before we dive in here, Brad, any disclosures, conflicts from the authors or yourself? Nada from me. In terms of the study, it was funded and designed by Novo Nordisk, a big, big pharma company that produces all sorts of insulin products. All those with Novo, obviously in the prefix, don't want to give them any more shoutouts. I'm not on their payroll. As well, they make a few GLP-1 agonists. Interestingly, they produce insulin detamir, that's their basal insulin, and not insulin glargine, which was used as the control in this study. Interesting. Um, Brad, what is the bottom line here? So this was a phase two double-blind RCT comparing subcutaneous insulin, the standard, versus a novel oral insulin in lowering fasting plasma glucose levels in poorly controlled, insulin-naive, type 2 diabetic adults. And the bottom line, editors, can I get a drum roll, please? Overall, there were no significant differences in glycemic control or in the safety profile between the oral and subcutaneous insulin. Very cool. So Brad, I'm excited to hear about this. But as a new fully licensed and practicing primary care physician, what made you choose this article? Well, first of all, how cool is this study, right? We're talking about oral insulin. This is the future. Didn't you always picture a future with self-driving cars, a Toronto Maple Leaf Stanley Cup, and an easy pill of insulin? No, that's not your future. <laughs> so I've had my family practice now for, well, a little over seven months, and I've inherited, of course, a lot of patients with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. I've recently seen quite a few A1Cs in the 10 to 12 range. Complications already happening or unfortunately waiting to happen. And these patients are already sometimes on three oral agents. You know, I stress medication adherence, diet, exercise, but often what these patients really need to prevent complications is insulin. But for many of my patients, the idea of giving themselves a needle every day or sometimes several per day can be a really big hurdle. If only there was a way to administer insulin without needing to inject yourself. Well, look no further. I can see their commercials on American television already. So if this actually works, this would really be a game changer. 
Totally. It makes a lot of sense. That conversation is always a hard one. Adding another agent after Metformin is difficult because the question is always, but will I need to be on this for life? And the answer generally is yes. But that conversation is even more difficult when it involves a needle in the abdomen. And honestly, I would be the same. So what I'm hearing is the main advantage would be the convenience and subsequently the adherence piece. Yeah, so convenience is certainly a huge one, which could lead to more buy-in from my patients and starting insulin. But there's a few other potential benefits that I've recently learned about. So taking insulin orally leads to absorption by the portal vein directly to the liver. So this better mimics how the pancreas naturally secretes insulin. This, in theory, would minimize peripheral hyperinsulinemia, so less insulin being secreted elsewhere, which occurs when insulin is administered sub-Q, and that's what we do today. So oral insulin could then theoretically decrease the risks of weight gain and hypoglycemia, which are two of the biggest issues with sub-Q insulin other than jabby-jabby. This all sounds almost too good to be true. Convenient, no needles, less weight gain, less hypoglycemia. Why are we only talking about this in 2019? If only it were that easy, John. If only. Insulin is very susceptible to being broken down by proteases in the stomach and the intestine. They are also huge molecules and hydrophilic, two qualities you really don't want in an oral drug. This is really bringing me back to undergrad physiology, Brad. What an interesting setup for this study. So great potential, but also a great challenge. Have there been any previous studies looking at oral insulin? So insulin was discovered in 1921 in Toronto, gotta represent the six. There have been several in vitro and animal studies on oral insulin, but no RCTs looking at oral insulin versus sub-Q have been published to date. So this is the first of its kind. Are you listeners out there in podcast land all just on the edge of your seat waiting for this? I am definitely on the edge of my seat. Good. (laughs) And what is the oral insulin we're going to be looking at? Just regular human insulin, but taken PO? Not exactly. It's called I338. And hopefully nobody was harmed in the first 337 iterations of this product. It's a long-acting basal insulin. And the formulation also includes the compound sodium carpate, which is a food additive that's considered safe by the FDA. And that's added onto the molecule to increase absorption. As well, they made a few little amino acid substitutions here and there that have made the insulin to have a longer half-life than the regular human insulin. So basically it's human insulin with a bit of a twist. Let's get right into it then. Tell me about the study design, how they looked at this oral insulin and the inclusion criteria. So this was a phase two randomized, double blind, double dummy, parallel trial completed in two research sites in Germany. Don't you just love double dummy studies? The study participants included insulin naive adults with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes on either metformin monotherapy or metformin plus another oral anti-diabetic drug. The study participants included insulin naive adults with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes on either metformin monotherapy or metformin plus another oral anti-diabetic med with baseline hemoglobin A1Cs of 7 to 10%. 50 patients were randomly assigned one-to-one to one one of two groups to receive therapy for eight weeks. They were assigned to either once-daily I338 tablets, aka the oral insulin group, or the subcutaneous insulin glargine, which is our control group. So for simplicity, I'm going to call them the orals versus the sub-Qs. And the primary endpoint was fasting plasma glucose concentration at eight weeks. Interesting. Small study. Um, You mentioned it was a double dummy design. I'll limit my bad joke since you already made one. Instead, tell our listeners exactly what this means. 
Yeah, so it was well done how the patients and investigators were masked in terms of this. So the orals, remember them, they received the I338 tablets PO and placebo concentration injected sub-Q, whereas the control group or the sub-Qs received a placebo tablet along with the insulin glargine sub-Q. So everyone in the study, no matter what group they were in, got one pill and one needle daily. Hence, patients and investigators stay blind, even though the two treatment groups are not easily made identical. And there you have it, your double dummy. Thanks, Brad. Patients on insulin often continue some of their oral meds. Did the study allow for that? Yeah, good point. So there was a two-week run-in period at the beginning of the study, which oral meds other than metformin or DPP-4 inhibitors were stopped. As in, they were able to continue their metformin and their DPP-4 inhibitors, like citagliptin or something like that, for the duration of the study. But meds like sulfonylureas with insulin would be a concern for lows, bad news, so those kinds of medications were stopped. Were patients on other orals excluded from the study, or really any patient excluded? So we started off with 82 patients that were screened, and 32 were cut, mainly due to not meeting the inclusion or exclusion criteria. Well, yeah, they may have met the exclusion criteria, double negative there. Patients with major GI disorders or have had major abdominal surgeries, those were excluded because this could affect the absorption of PO drugs. And they also excluded patients on drugs with narrow therapeutic windows. They didn't specify which drugs were included there, but I would guess the typicals like lithium and warfarin. Makes sense. So last question about the studies end before I want to hear about results. In- insulin doses need to be titrated up and sometimes down to reach pre and postprandial target glucose control. How was this done in this study? Yeah, great point. So the titration was done at the discretion of the investigators, and this can sometimes muddy the waters a little bit. So for insulin glargine, they followed protocols from previous studies where they started insulin glargine 10 units and then titrate upwards once weekly based on fasting plasma glucose concentrations. And it was a little bit more tricky for the I338 titration in the orals. They started at a dose of 2,700 nanomoles of I338. And I'm not sure about you, John, but I'm not exactly comfortable treating my patients based on nanomoles. And this was based on a phase one dose escalation trial looking at I338, and this dose was generally considered safe. The max dose allowed in the trial was 60 units of insulin glargine, or 16,200 nanomoles of I338. Okay, I like this. I like, I like how they did that. I tend to titrate my insulin up daily instead of weekly, but you know, I digress. Tell me about outcomes. What did they look at? Fair enough. So the primary outcome was fasting plasma glucose concentration at eight weeks. They also looked at a whole slew of secondary endpoints, including hemoglobin A1C, which honestly I rely on much more than fasting glucose concentrations, as well as fructosamine levels, fasting C-peptide, and 1,5-anhydroglucetol, which of course I'm ordering on all my type 2 diet patients in my practice. Yeah, 1,5-anhydro, which I can't even say, is a go-to for me at my three-month diabetic visits. Any other outcomes, Brad? What about safety? Yeah, so in terms of adverse events, they were looking at hypoglycemic episodes, of course. So that's defined as fasting glucose levels less than 3.9 or the typical symptoms, as well as physical exam findings, including body weight and vitals, ECG changes, lab changes, and insulin antibodies. Gotcha. Makes sense. Brad, tell me what they found. So both groups were similar. Almost all patients were white males, classic, unfortunately, with an average age of 60. The average fasting glucose concentrations in the orals was 9.7 at baseline compared to 9.1 in the sub-Q group. So potentially slightly worse diabetics in the oral group, interestingly, to start with. The A1Cs in the orals was 8.1 compared to 8.2% in the sub-Qs, so quite similar from that point of view. 
Just under half the patients in both groups were on baseline metformin monotherapy, whereas 8 out of 22 compared to 7 out of 22 were on metformin plus DPP-4 inhibitors in the orals and sub-Qs respectively. Interestingly, in the oral group, only one patient was on metformin, DPP-4, and a third oral compared to five patients in the sub-Q group. And remember, all of these non-metformin or DPP-4 oral drugs were stopped. So this was the only other notable difference at baseline between the groups. Not to come back to the same point, but I'm curious about the insulin titration. How did that go? You love that insulin titration. So the insulin doses increased in both groups throughout the study, as we expect. And remember, the increases were up to the discretion of the investigators based on the previous week's fasting plasma glucose levels. If they were to do it every day, it would just be impossible to do in the study, unfortunately. So a stable dose of insulin was reached by six weeks in about half the patients in both groups, whereas the other half had dose adjustments until the very last visit. Six patients in the oral group reached the max dose of insulin allowable in the study, compared to none in the sub-Qs. And because of that, if the oral dose was allowed to go up further, less than the oral group likely would have reached a stable dose by week six. Okay, Brad, give me some outcomes here. Okay, time for the goods. So remember, we're looking at changes in fasting plasma glucose concentration at eight weeks. In that time frame, mean fasting glucose levels decreased by 2.4 millimoles per liters in the oral group compared to 2.6 millimoles per liter in the sub-Q group, yielding a p-value of 0.46, conferring no significant differences amongst the groups. And what about these secondary outcomes? The hemoglobin A1c in the oral group decreased by 0.75% compared to 1.05% in the sub-Q, so a p-value of 0.077, aka not significant, which is set at 0.05. There are also no significant differences in fructosamine or C-peptide levels, but the 1,5 and hydroglucetol level increased significantly greater in the sub-Q group compared to the oil group. I assume you're going to elaborate on that. You can't just drop the 1,5 and hydroglucetol bomb and not address it. <laughs> okay, fine. I won't belabor it for too long, but long story short, high values of our friend marker 1,5 and hydroglucetol indicate better glycemic control. So the opposite of the other markers that we're used to, where you usually want low values. Basically, it measures postprandial glucose excursions, which is essentially measuring the spikes in glucose levels after meals. So overall, it's not really an ideal marker when we're looking here at comparing basal insulin formulations, but still this value was significantly improved in the sub-Q versus the orals. Thanks for explaining that to me, Brad. It's, you know, thanks a lot. It's important. <laughs> what about adverse events? Any differences between the groups? Not really. The adverse events were pretty similar amongst the groups, and they're mostly mild and not thought to be related to the insulin products themselves. Mostly, you know, GI or URI symptoms. There was this one urogenital hemorrhage in the sub-Q group that required hospitalization and stopping the insulin for two days, but not thought to be related to the insulin here. Hypoglycemic events were also quite low and similar between the two groups. So this oral insulin product sounds quite safe and as effective as sub-Q insulin. There has to be a but. There has to be something you're going to tell me that isn't true here. What are the, some of the limitations? Well, like we alluded to, it's a small trial, right? So with only 25 patients in each group, we're likely underpowered to show small differences in fasting plasma glucose levels. But those numbers were fairly similar. A larger sample size may, however, have found significance in the A1C levels as those differences were fairly close to significance. Also, A1C levels can take three months to fully change, as you know, given the half-life of the red blood cells, and this trial was only two months. The flip side of this, though, is that oral insulin has a longer half-life than sub-Q insulin. 
Therefore, with the slow, conservative titration schedule that was done based on the protocol here to ensure patient safety, it's likely that it took longer for the oral group to reach its steady state. And if that's the case, this may in fact reflect in higher plasma glucose levels. So a longer study and a more aggressive titration schedule would be needed to account for this. As well, the results in the study, they make it seem like oral insulin was considered non-inferior to sub-Q insulin in the primary endpoint, but the study wasn't set up in this way. They didn't call for, for this, and there was no defined parameter of what would be considered non-inferior. Fair. Brad, let's talk about money here. How much does this cost, this oral insulin? Yeah, so that's the big one here. That's the elephant in the room here. It always comes down to money. So they don't really get exactly into the dollars and cents in the study, but I agree, it sounds like this oral insulin costs a fortune. Basically, the bioavailability of oral insulin is low, like we spoke about, and the I338 has been modified to have a long half-life, but the dosing to reach equivalent levels of glycemia compared to sub-Q products was so high. Remember, we're talking about 16,200 nanomoles was the max dose, and it was reached in six of the 25 participants. This high dosing schedule was considered too high and too expensive for widespread public use and to become commercially available. The investigators, they want to go back to the drawing board to readdress the product, to make some changes to further improve absorption so that the dosing and, of course, the pricing can go down. So we may have to wait for, I don't know, I-668, a few more years for this product, a few more years for self-driving cars, and maybe a few more years for a Leaf Stanley Cup. So, Brad, on balance, weighing the strengths and weaknesses that we've talked about, what are your thoughts on this study? So, very novel product. Strong need for something like this. I think it was very well designed, but it needs to be a much larger and longer study. Probably still too expensive, though, at this point, to have a much larger and longer study. And hopefully further changes can be made to this I338 product to improve absorption, and then we can study it better. The deep dive on this study, is it going to affect your practice at all? Uh, not too much yet, as oral insulin is not really ready for prime time. But if this product is altered and ready for the markets, and if it's found to be safe and as effective as other sub-Q basal insulin, then certainly this could change my practice if this could you know, increase adherence and then potentially decrease hypoglycemia and weight gain. I think it would change all of our practices. Can't wait to see what happens with this product though. I'll be tracking it closely. Me too, Brad, me too. Okay, John, time to flip things over. Your time to shine. What study are you going to be talking to us about? Great, I'm gonna be talking about a paper published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine by Daniel K. Nishijma and colleagues in January 2019 titled, The Effect of Transamic Acid TXA Going Forward on Functional Outcomes an exploratory analysis of the CRASH-2 randomized control trial. Awesome, John. Really excited to hear this one. Any conflicts of interest off the bat that you want to lay out for us? None for me, obviously, but I'm going to directly quote Annals' policy here. So, quote, All authors are required to disclose any and all commercial, financial, and other relationships in any related to the subject of this article. The authors have stated that no such relationships exist. End quote. Though I'd note that Pfizer helped fund this paper and they make cyclocapron, both the oral and the IV forms in Canada. Okay then. Thanks for highlighting that, John. Pharma money involved in both of the papers here. Hard, though, to fund these kind of things without big old pharma. Okay, back to the good stuff. What's the bottom line in your study, John? Great. So this was an exploratory analysis of the clinical randomization of an antiflabrolytic insignificant hemorrhage trial that I'll continue to refer to as the CRASH-2 going forward data set to investigate the hypothesis that TXA improves overall functional outcomes compared with the placebo in severely injured adults. 
We know from the primary CRASH-2 trial analysis that TXA improves survival in these severely injured adults. Whereas here today, the bottom line in this analysis, three different analyses to be precise, of 13,432 patients, they found that adult trauma patients randomized to TXA within three hours of injury is associated with improved patient function as measured up to 28 days post-injury. This improvement was mainly noted among individuals with the lowest mortality risk, which I think is the coolest part here, but we'll get into that. Great. Thanks, John. I'll be totally honest here. I found some of the stats in this paper a bit confusing, especially when it comes to those functional outcomes piece. So I'm excited to hear more. John, why'd you pick this study? Well, TXA is something we see a lot. PAO is an outpatient for menorrhagia and the ED for any bleeding really on the OB floor. And like we see here in its IV form for trauma. This is mostly based on pretty good data, including the original CRASH-2, showing improved mortality. I found this study particularly interesting because the impact on functional outcomes is difficult to study epidemiologically, especially from big trial data that tends to collect and rely on harder outcomes, doubly so in sick patients like in this trial. Is there much literature, John, on this outside of this paper? For my quick dive in, very little. A few small, large database analyses. Trauma RCT work tends to look at pretty hard outcomes, most because of the nature of the patient population with rather high morbidity and mortality, no matter what intervention used. The original CRASH-2 had collected 28-day functional status as measured by the modified Oxford Handicap Scale, but it was never analyzed outside of just baseline characteristics in the original paper, which on that subject, I'll make sure is uploaded in the website for background. Interesting. So qualitative functional outcomes are pretty hard to capture, and I wonder about the strength of these surrogate measures. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Methods time, methods time. Tell us about the study design, John. When and where did it take place? All the details, John, spare me none. The overall study design and protocol of the CRASH-2 trial has obviously been previously reported extensively, including in that original paper. It's also an appendix to this paper, and I don't want to dig too deep. But in summary, among trauma patients who survive to reach hospital, exsanguination or hypovolemic shock is a common cause of death. The CRASH-2 trial aimed to determine the effect of the early administration of TXA on death and transfusion requirements in bleeding trauma patients. To do this, CRASH-2 was a randomized placebo-controlled trial of 274 hospitals in 40 countries. More relevant to us today, it includes 20,111 adults with or at risk of significant traumatic bleeding within eight hours of injury. They were randomized to either TXA, a loading dose of one gram during 10 minutes, followed by a one gram infusion during eight hours, or placebo. Both patients and study staff were blinded to treatment allocation. They reported that, compared with placebo, TXA given at one hour or sooner and at one to three hours from injury decreased death by bleeding. There was no statistically significant difference when TXA was given more than three hours from injury. Thus, for this study, they included only patients randomized three hours or less from the end time of injury, which is logical to think that if TXA didn't improve survival, it's not going to improve functional outcomes. Patients were also excluded from the study if they did not have a modified Oxford Handicap Scale score reported. That is quite the trial, John. A randomized placebo-controlled trial of 274 hospitals in 40 countries. Getting buy-in to upload a handout to the EMR is difficult enough in my clinic. The organizational infrastructure and financing for something like this is mind-blowing. Tell me a bit more about the actual study population that this analysis looked at. After excluding 6,667 patients with times of presentation more than three hours after injury, 
11 patients with missing times of injury, and 97 patients with missing modified Oxford Handicap Scale scores. There were 13,432 patients included in this analysis. 6,679 randomized to placebo and 6,753 randomized to TXA. Patients were on average 34 of year of age, 83.5% men, and 50% of penetrating traumatic injuries. Table 2 does a nice breakdown of their other baseline characteristics, but I'm going to use my little bit of time here to discuss the fascinating outcome analysis. Hope you're ready, Brad. Oh, I'm ready. Okay, so now that we have a good grasp of who these patients were and how the study was set up, what were the outcomes? And remind me again, why exactly did they do this? We know TXA improves harder outcomes, but why these outcomes? Why should we care? I know you've said it already like four times, but just lay it out for me one more time, please. Totally. I think it's worth saying it again. The goal of this study was to evaluate whether TXA was associated with improved functional outcomes, and if so, which patients benefited from TXA use. The results of the study could inform future trauma trials about the use of functional status as an outcome measure, as well as potential analytical methods to do so. So it may have more weight in its method than in its results. The primary outcome measured was functional status at hospital discharge or on day 28 after injury if they were still in the hospital. Functional status was measured with the modified Oxford Handicap Scale, which is essentially an ordinary scale with the following functional categories, from best to worst, from 0 to 6, no symptoms, minor symptoms, some restrictions, dependent, not requiring constant attention, fully dependent, and dead. Listeners will remember this from my last podcast looking at fluoxetine post-stroke. The modified Oxford Handicap Scale score measured at hospital discharge has been shown elsewhere to be highly correlated with six-month functional outcomes. Table one in the paper lays out this Oxford handicap scale really nice. Zero to six. Zero being no symptoms and six being, well, dead. Similar to the modified Rankin scale for those qualitative research out there, I actually met my wife over qualitative research. True story. I digress, John. From listening to your past episodes, I know you're probably most excited about this part. Analysis. Stats life. What do they do? Okay, so they did three separate analyses. The first, straightforward. They compared the mean utility weighted modified Oxford handicap scale between patients randomized to TXA versus placebo within three hours of injury, both unadjusted and adjusted for a range of study characteristics. Second, to estimate the rate of functional recovery, they calculated the area under the curve according to utility weighted functional outcomes and length of hospitalization. The area under that curve represents the total amount of quality of life during the first 28 days after injury. So they use a linear regression model to estimate the adjusted mean difference to the quality of life between, again, patients receiving TXA and those receiving placebo. Third, to further explore differences across the functional outcome spectrum while incorporating baseline risk of mortality, they conducted a sliding dichotomy analysis, which is so cool. Patients within the CRASH-2 cohort were classified into four mortality risk strata. Less than 6%, 6 to 20%, 21% 21 to 50%, and over 50% mortality. They analyzed each of these strata by using a multiple logistic regression model with favorable outcomes as the dependent outcome. Why, you ask? Well, this is just fancy stratification. Helps to identify, even if TXA improves functional outcomes, does it do so for everyone or just in certain patients? Okay, this makes way more sense to me now. Cool stuff. Okay, John, bring it home for me here. What did they find? So in the straightforward analysis, TXA use was significantly associated with higher utility weighted modified Oxford handicap scale scores with a coefficient of 0.02. In the area under the curve analysis, they report the patients randomized to TXA at a higher 28-day mean utility weighted Oxford handicap scale, again, compared to those with placebo. And without getting into my strong opinions how they analyze the heteroscedacity of the data, 
When each risk group was tested separately, only the group with less than 6% baseline risk of mortality demonstrate a statistically significant effect of TXA for favorable outcomes. So essentially, most improvement in functional outcomes for those in the lowest base mortality, which is rather logical, no? John, any interesting aspects of the study that you want to highlight for us? Well, for one, albeit an interesting study with really thought-out patient-centered outcomes, I'm not convinced this is very clinically relevant. I mean, the actual difference that they're seeing. Again, the overall mean difference in functional outcomes between patients randomized to TXA compared with those randomized to placebo was a mean utility weighted modified Oxford Handicap Scale score of 0.02. The authors acknowledge this and note that previous studies have used a wide range of methods and approaches to define the minimum clinically important difference, resulting in a wide range of values in the literature. Though I'm going to play devil advocate to myself here. That being said, with use of standardized instruments measuring health really quality of life, a difference of 0.02 can equate to, say, the difference between no pain or discomfort and moderate pain. It's a squill of quality of life from 0 to 6. So 0.02, depending on where you are on that, could mean a lot. Most important aspect, though, I think, is one that you just alluded to. It is pretty commonly thought that TXA should be reserved for patients with the greatest risk for death or massive transfusion. More emergency medicine providers or TTLs don't jump onto IVTXA in extremely minor trauma. But in this study, in the sliding dichotomy analysis, TXA had the most pronounced impact in the lowest risk group. That's very cool. Okay, John, are there any important limitations of the study that we haven't discussed just yet? First, you know, like everything else, this was an exploratory analysis of previously completed clinical trial data, which falls victim to the methodological limitations of any retrospective study. Though the quality of the data here is much better than, say, an administrative database of some kind. The authors may disagree with me, but I also wonder if functional outcomes would be better measured like a year out. Because trauma, say, discharged 18 days later, home for 10 days, to me isn't really a great measure of what an individual's function and quality of life is likely to look like long term. Though the authors do reference a previous trauma study demonstrating that the modified Oxford handicap scale measured at hospital discharge was highly correlated with six-month functional outcomes. Lastly, like all trauma research, survival bias is a huge issue, and it's always important to consider. So true. On the balance, John, what are your thoughts? Will this study affect your practice in any way? Cool study, amazing methods to look at a pretty complicated qualitative-ish outcome. Big sample size with, you know, possible future impact and starting a wider conversation that we should also consider other outcomes outside of mortality and trauma research. And, you know, TXA for everyone. I'm kidding. Unlikely to affect my practice anytime soon. Fair enough. Great. Thanks so much, John. Okay, so that brings our papers to a close, which means it's time for the good stuff segment. Brad, tell our listeners what else you've been reading. John, I read an interesting article in the CMAJ last week called Life Expectancy Grows with the Supply of Primary Care Doctors. And as a primary care doctor myself, titles like these sure do catch my attention. I'm sure glad the life expectancy didn't train in the other direction. Basically, this article was analyzing a study published in JAMA in February of 2019 that found that average life expectancy increased by 51.5 days for every 10 more primary care docs per 100,000 people in the U.S. between 2005 and 2015. They also found that there are approximately 1% fewer cancer-related deaths and cardiovascular-related deaths for every 10 more GPs in the area. The lead author, Dr. Basu, said that essentially with more primary care physicians, there's a better chance that an individual will be treated for classical uh, cardiovascular risk factors like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia, and that common cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer may be found earlier with routine screening. 
improving life expectancy. I know we're all thinking there are so many other factors involved in mortality stats. But interestingly, they were able to control for some of the individual factors like SES and smoking status, as well as other regional factors like the number of hospital beds in an area, etc. So without doing a, a full deep dive and analyzing all the stats in the study, I just mention this because in today's climate of government cuts to family, doctors, etc., we won't go into that long discussion, but that certainly has led to more and more unmatched spots in family medicine residency programs, which will continue to lead to more Ontarians and Canadians not having access to a family physician. You know, it's nice to mention some of these studies that highlight that the role of the family doc is still vibrant, relevant, and essential even today. What about you, John? What, do you, what are you reading these days? I caught a cool piece in The New Yorker, a um, little less medical last week, titled Why Measles is a Quintessential Political Issue of Our Time. Essentially, last Wednesday, the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation, which is a long, fancy name for a subcommittee to the House of Representatives in the U.S., held a hearing that got absolutely no media coverage because it was on the same day that Michael Cohen testified before another committee. Essentially, this hearing focused on ongoing measles outbreaks in the United States. Between January 1st and February 21st, 2019, 159 cases of measles were diagnosed in 10 states, more cases than there were in all of 2017. At this hearing, testifying were Anthony S. Foshi, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Nancy Messonnier, the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the Center at the CDC, both physicians. One after another essentially stood there and had to answer questions about whether measles were, one, dangerous, and whether vaccines were safe. And the author of this article goes on to make an interesting point that they were so polite and reasonable, but it's sort of a double-edged sword because a polite and respectful response to these ridiculous or ignorant questions, to a certain extent, affirms the impression that the question itself is valid. But... The theme here is that vaccination, the refusal to vaccinate, continue to be extremely political acts, individual decisions that affect others and their ability of people to inhibit common spaces. Anyways, great read. In saying that in 2019, that again, we're debating vaccination, a cornerstone of public health and medicine. But yeah, check it out. That's it, folks. Thanks, Brad, for being here. And thanks to all the Roundtable listeners for tuning in. Until next time. Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on the Roundtable. This week on the Roundtable, we are covering person-centered care with Dr. Lisa Richardson. I'm Shaliza Halani, the segment director. And I'm Emily Hughes, the producer of the show. Dr. Richardson is a general internal medicine physician and clinician educator at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. So we really wanted to use this special segment to explore person-centered care, which is something that I've heard a lot in medical school and out and sometimes on the wards as well. Something that I want to get a better understanding of is a definition of person-centered care and maybe if there's some frameworks or if we use any frameworks to help us understand this concept a bit better. Can you fill us in? So the way we've been thinking about person-centered care in the Department of Medicine here at U of T is that person-centered care is clearly about putting a patient who is a person and has an identity beyond that of being just a patient at the center of all of our thinking around how we interact with that person, but also how we design our health systems. And in my case, with the portfolio of education, how we think about educating our learners. It was a very clear 
decision made by an advisory group that we first met with that we didn't want to call this portfolio patient-centered care. And that was because patients are so much more than just a patient. And we all have experiences, I'm sure, with our own loved ones, our own experiences where you feel that when you enter the healthcare system, you do become just a, quote, diagnosis. And even the way we speak about that in medical education is, you know, we may say, well, the COPD patient. So a patient literally becomes represented metaphorically through what their disease is. So we wanted to think about much more than that, but more than considering the experiences of patients, we wanted to think about how it structures their whole experience of healthcare and access to healthcare and recognize that being a person-centered practitioner is more than considering than just being, quote, a nice doctor. It's about thinking how are the systems structured that actually facilitate the care that they get or that establish barriers. And so we very much incorporated equity into the way we're thinking about person-centered care because it's about the structures and processes that organize the care for that patient. I love that. Can you give me some examples of, in practice, how we can think of the people we're caring for as people as opposed to patients? So I often will challenge the team with whom I'm working. And I gave the example earlier of the way we even refer to our patients. And so rather than saying a copd -er, we would say, Mr. So-and-so is a person with COPD who's presenting to the emergency with increasing shortness of breath. What does that do? It totally changes our relationship with that patient because it reminds us that they have much more than just a disease. And so I actually will often also challenge learners to find out one thing about that person that has nothing related to the reason they've come into hospital. Perfect. I like all the points you brought up and I think it's important to encourage ourselves and the people around us to adopt the same approach. It would seem almost common sense that we would be incorporating this on a day-to-day -day basis but for a number of reasons, the viewpoints of the people that we are caring for or their lives aren't always taken into account. From your experiences, what are the most common reasons or why do you think this happens so frequently? The reason that people usually give is time. We don't have time. And actually, when you look at some of the literature in this area, this is not necessarily about spending more time although longer interactions are more conducive to having long conversations about a person's you know, past experiences or what they do outside of when they're not in the clinic or the hospital setting. But it's actually about being present in that interaction as a provider in a really meaningful way. And when we've involved patients in advising us around how to teach this, and they use words like being humane, being a great listener, and being authentic, so being real, recognizing that you as a provider also have a whole story and history and that you need to be aware of that. And for each patient, every time you're entering a room to see someone, you need to be completely present or as present as you're able to be. And so one of the tricks I give that I learned from our spiritual care practitioner is before entering a room, when you're doing that hand sanitation, and I'm sort of pretending to wash my hands right now, it's like a mindful moment to say I need to be present for that interaction with my patient that I'm about to enter the room for. What I think is the reason is that we do start to become encultured into, you know, some of the language that's used around this is the hidden curriculum. There is a culture around this of we have an agenda as providers 
we've got a really busy schedule, we have to be efficient, and so we go in not even thinking about this aspect of the care that we're providing. And so what we talk about in educating for person-centered care is being aware of that, that agenda. It's yes, you need to understand a person's symptoms and how long it's been going on for, but you need to recognize that we have a particular agenda and that the person who's sitting across from us also has specific needs and sometimes they don't match. And so often one of the tips is just to ask, well, what are you hoping to get from this encounter? What is your major concern and how can I help? Or what are you hoping that I can do to help you? Making explicit that that relationship does have two people. <laughs> it's not just the physician <laughs> or the provider. There are other people on the other side of that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think this leads nicely kind of into the next point we wanted to talk about was discussion versus dialogue. And I know that this has come up in some previous meetings and some previous conversations. So I wonder if you can tell our audience what you see is the difference between these. We've been working with our vice chair of education here, who's Dr. Arno Kumagai, who's written about the differences between a discussion versus a dialogue in medicine and in medical education. And a discussion is distinct in that it has a clear endpoint. The goal is to come to a diagnosis or to arrive at a clear treatment plan. And it's generally a hierarchy where you have, if it's a teaching discussion, where you would have the attending physician who knows everything and the resident are one or two or three or the medical student who is on the other side of that power dynamic in that hierarchy. And it's clearly leading towards a goal. And those are obviously very important. I'm not in any way suggesting that discussion isn't a critical aspect of what we do every day in medical education. But the idea of the dialogue is it flattens that hierarchy. So if it's a dialogue with a learner between an attending physician and a learner, then we recognize that there is not a clear endpoint, that it is two people engaged in a conversation where you don't know where it may end up. It's exploratory and there's room to understand things other than the cognitive, the emotional experiences, I think often about the other dimensions of care, psychological, spiritual, emotional, so how those factor in. And a dialogue is about having that two-way conversation that it's exploratory, you don't know where it's going to lead. Kind of touching to your first point about expectations, patients and physicians often are on different agendas and it almost feels, I don't want to use the word antagonistic, but sometimes you enter a room and you have a different idea of what the next steps may be and the person you're caring for has a different idea. And sometimes you leave encounters not feeling totally happy with the way that that may have gone. And that's, I think, a struggle that comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, what advice do you have for trainees to better their communication skills in these dialogues? You need to be clear when you're going into a room I think even in to see a patient in a clinic setting and whatever the setting may be, I think that moment when you're doing your hand washing and you're saying, okay, I need to be mindful of being present and a good listener here. You also need to be thinking, but I do have an agenda. You know, I know what the diagnosis is here and I need to deliver that diagnosis or I know that the patient is ready for discharge and I, I know that the family's feeling like they're not ready to take for the person to go home and the person themselves may not feel ready. So we need to figure out how to work on this together. So I think being able to let go, recognizing what that quote agenda is and being able to let go of it. And that's very difficult. 
But when you no longer feel like you are the one who is determining what the plan is, you're able to then engage in an honest dialogue with the person with whom you're caring for and say, well, what are your hopes and expectations? And then I would often say, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I know from the medical evidence. This is what I know. For, and I would often explain, this is what I know from a large randomized control trial. And I may not use that language. I may explain, you know, we've enrolled hundreds of patients in a study and it's shown that people like you tend to benefit from this kind of treatment. So that's where, that's the knowledge that I'm bringing to this encounter. So making sure that they are understanding the knowledge that you're carrying and that you need to share that so that someone can make an informed decision. So they truly need to understand it, not using medical jargon, et cetera. And then listening to what their perspectives are once you've shared that. And then coming up with, this is the shared decision-making, coming up with a plan of care together. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.